Today's CBS Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Tough Shed. Start dreaming of a backyard season and how great it could be with a durable, attractive new shed, studio, or garage from Tough Shed. Use our online design tool at toughshed.com, then let our building experts handle the final details, delivery, and installation. Nobody has what Tough Shed has. Make this the year of your backyard. Give us a call, stop in, or design online at toughshed.com. Dream, design, and build with Tough Shed. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. A busy Sunday morning, it turns out. Tropical storm Barry continues to drench much of the Gulf Coast. And New York City is waking up after a blackout that stopped the Big Apple in its tracks. We'll have the latest on both in just a few minutes. And then we look forward to this coming Saturday, the 50th anniversary of the day America went to the moon. We'll be celebrating that momentous achievement in a number of ways. Tracy Smith has a preview. Oh boy, it looks good, Lonnie. Half a century after mankind's greatest adventure. Man on the way to the moon. We look back. The eagle has landed. At the men who made history. I was just thrilled to be a piece of the whole thing. The women who helped make it happen. I went home on many a night and cried because I knew I couldn't do it. Why'd you think that? Because I was scared. This was a person's life this depended on. And the legendary CBS newsman who brought America along for the ride. Boy, look at those pictures. Wow. To the moon and back later on Sunday morning. For anyone planning a long day of travel, into space or otherwise, the words... Breakfast is served, or welcomed indeed. Susan Spencer will provide a buffet of options. From bacon and eggs to cereal and milk, odds are your first meal of the day is also your favorite. Maybe after waking up, you're grateful to be alive another day. How would you describe the average American's relationship to cereal? Cereal is a very personal choice for people. We're serving up breakfast ahead on Sunday morning. Steve Hartman has the story of a most unusual pet project. We'll take the measure of the tape measure and more. All coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. Before setting off on our promised trip to the moon, Breakfast is served. There's a lot on the menu, as our Susan Spencer can tell us. For me next batch of Lucky Charms, Will Fulton admits that as a kid, cereal just bowled him over. So did you have a favorite? Lucky Charms was a big one. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. A lot of Rice Krispies, all the varieties. Cocoa Rice Krispies, Rice Krispie Treats. Some 20 years later, Fulton is writing for the website Thrillist where his childhood passion launched a wild article. The assignment was basically to eat nothing but cereal for an entire week. 
and sure enough. And so was born a cereal, cereal eater. For 21 consecutive meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, nothing but cereal. I ate 82 bowls over the course of this oh of my God. seven days. Yeah. As the bowls stacked up, he started seeing this lark as a social experiment to answer an existential question. What is cereal's place in my life, in the life of people our age? Cereal is a little bit like reminding yourself that you're a child, even though your parents are not there. I'm having Count Chocula tonight. Okay, right, <laughs> yeah. right. But even if cereal's not on the menu, Yale University food historian Paul Friedman says the first meal of the day is also the best liked. Maybe after waking up, you're grateful to be alive another day. I'm still here. I'm still here <laughs> and I'm hungry. For hundreds of years, breakfast was pretty standard fare. Some kind of wheat porridge, some vegetables from last night, a bacon, definitely. Good. <laughs> Everyone can relate to that. But by the early 1900s, a man named W.K. Kellogg, yes, that Kellogg, revolutionized mornings. Wheaties is the first cereal we ever launched. Kellogg's competitor, Minneapolis-based General Mills, introduced Wheaties in the 1920s. Cereal is such a big deal here. Sugar toast crunch and pumpkin. It has its own president. It's a dream job. Dana McNabb. You're definitely enthusiastic about cereal I and am. certainly about breakfast. I am. But around the country, cereal fatigue may be setting in. Instead, eggs are on a roll, with breakfast sandwich sales up 10%, while cereal, though still an $8 billion industry, has dropped a billion over the past nine years. So McNabb's team got to work on re-energizing some old favorites. What does re-energizing mean? Bringing excitement back to people's relationship with cereal. You'll love the taste of chocolate and peanut butter. Excitement often seems to involve sugar, as with the new chocolate peanut butter. Let me taste this. Cheerios. This is breakfast dessert. <laughs> is the world a better place for having chocolate peanut butter Cheerios? I would have to say definitely yes. McNabb says another brilliant stroke, Lucky Charms. shaping the marshmallows in Lucky Charms into tiny unicorns, okay. has boosted sales by double digits. That made a big difference? It you changed the shape of the marshmallow? Yeah. You had a meeting about, about that. Talked about the news. We did have a meeting about that. Several. Several. <laughs> it has sugar and like Yay. kids love sugar, right? <laughs> That's a good thing, right. <laughs> is it the most nutritious choice? Probably not. Wendy Lopez is a registered dietitian and the perfect person to ask the big question. What do you eat for breakfast? When I'm rushing, I actually have a smoothie. Usually I'll put some kind of yogurt and I'll put vegetables in there too. Ooh. I know it sounds a little crazy. It sounds horrible. <laughs> so it'll be something like spinach or cucumber and then I'll balance it with a banana. I know your face. Sorry, I'll the combination it. just got to you, me. Have you had it? Spinach and cucumber? No. Is there anything that you just absolutely cannot and your worst nightmare, imagine eating for breakfast. Pumpkin spice stuff. <laughs> pumpkin spice bacon, pumpkin spice no, eggs, no. no. I do draw the line of pumpkin spice. Drawing the line is what Will Fulton probably wishes he'd done. After 82 consecutive bowls of cereal, he didn't quite feel himself. 
go figure. This made me lethargic. It made me confused. Of course, in fairness, nobody suggests that anybody eat Lucky Charms exclusively. No, uh, this is something I totally brought in myself. All my life, people have said breakfast is the most important meal. Is that true? Eating breakfast really helps to set the tone for what you're going to be eating for the rest of the day. If I could eat my favorite breakfast every day, it would just be bacon and eggs. Do you have any favorite vegetables that you enjoy? <laughs> <laughs> Not to go with bacon and eggs in a smoothie. Okay. <laughs> so whatever you choose, before you leave the house today, well, you know what to do. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, July 14, 1868, 151 years ago today, the day Alvin Fellows of New Haven, Connecticut, patented his new and useful improvement in spring measuring tapes. Though not the first, Fellows' design is widely regarded as the forerunner of the device used to this day. Countless instructional videos demonstrate tape measure use, some less than obvious. I get a few simple tricks to divide any length in half. For example, watch Tom Silva of the PBS show This Old House divide a 37 and 5 eighths inch board in half without doing the math, just by arbitrarily measuring a 40 inch diagonal. Now half of 40 is 20. When I mark 20 on the diagonal, that board is divided exactly in half. Yes, it really works. Good. Come along then. While the 1964 movie Mary Poppins, starring Julie Andrews, found a more fanciful use. Just as I thought. Extremely stubborn and suspicious. <laughs> I am not. Back in the real world, the National Institute of Standards and Technology certifies tape measure accuracy, with six-foot tapes required to be correct to within a 32nd of an inch. We're taking it inch by inch by. And so, on this day some actually celebrate as National Tape Measure Day, we pose this question. When it comes to using Alvin Fellow's tape, can we honestly say that we measure up? Steve Hartman is here to tell us how one couple's pet project became a flowering business. <laughs> Vascular surgeon Mark Warner and his wife Marnie are pet lovers. So you can come over here and see Hamlet. In addition to Hamlet the pig this is Greg. and Greg the donkey, they care for about 40 other animals. Here, hold, hold him. And yet Mark says the love he has for his menagerie good bird. is nothing compared to the attachment he has formed <laughs> with his pet, orchids. You, you love them? Oh, absolutely. You get close to them over the, over the years. I mean, it's not, okay, so I'm a regular, normal guy. I just got an orchid. Yeah. And then so I bought another one. And again, I, I promise you, I'm a normal. You keep saying that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's a guy, the guy who says it the most is probably, is probably the, the least, least likely normal. to be normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Me thinks Hamlet's father doth protest too much because he knows what I'm about to tell you may sound crazy. But in his defense, he's not the only one who sends his plants to a kind of finishing school. These all belong to different people? Almost all of them, yes. Art Chadwick owns Chadwick & Son Orchids near Richmond, Virginia. His business used to just sell orchids, 
but now he mostly boards them. And people would say, can you take care of my orchid now that it's finished blooming? I said, well, I guess I could. Ah, now I've got a place to send my plants to camp. Why don't people just throw them away? There are people that do that. I know, why doesn't everybody do that? Well, you sort of feel guilty about throwing away a living plant. Like throwing away your dog. You can't do that. I could if its ears started falling off, or if I could barely even see it anymore. <laughs> Wait, why did somebody bother bringing you that? Well, she has some emotional attachment to it. To this thing? Yep. It's, it's almost like family to them. And like family, it can be hard to say goodbye. I have one of your orchids here. It hasn't bloomed in six years. He had to tell this woman her orchid will likely never bloom again. All that great. Well, she said just to bury it. How'd she take it? Well, she, you know, there was silence initially, and then you know she realized there's not much she could do. I think I got one pickup. Fortunately, pick most orchids survive. I think you have three pickups. Sweet. So after you pay your monthly $2 per plant boarding fee, you probably recognize some of these, you get your babies back in full bloom. And again, Mark is not alone. There are orchid borders in most states now. It's common, but normal? I, I assure you. Yeah. I'll let you be the judge of that. <laughs> Man on the Moon, 50 years on. Here again is Jane Pauley. 50 years ago next weekend, an event truly out of this world. We sent Americans to the moon. We're spending much of the rest of our Sunday morning remembering those remarkable days. With some help from Time Magazine editor-at-large, Jeffrey Kluger, co-author of the book Apollo 13, who remembers it all as if it were yesterday. I've covered space for much of my career. I fell in love with it when I was just a kid. During the summer of 1969, I was at summer camp. It was a camp called, in fact, Camp Comet. And I watched the Apollo 11 mission on a black and white TV along with 200 other kids hanging on to every word from Walter Cronkite. Good morning. It's three hours and 32 minutes until man begins the greatest adventure in his history. On July 16, 1969, three men sat down to a breakfast of steak and eggs. Yeah, they look pretty chipper then set off to meet the challenge laid down by President John F. Kennedy seven years before. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Neil Armstrong was the mission commander. Edwin Buzz Aldrin was the lunar module pilot. These men are alike as peas in a pod, and probably different from anyone you've ever known in your life. And Michael Collins was the command module pilot. How did your very distinct personalities complement one another, and did they clash? We never clashed. Uh, I got along very well with uh, Neil and Buzz. 12, 11. I hark back almost daily to John F. Kennedy. I felt that we were fulfilling, if successful, his mandate. Three, two, one. I was just thrilled to be a piece of the whole thing. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, it looks good, Wally. And it remained looking good. Through the 239,000-mile trip into orbit around the moon. What a moment. Man on the way to the moon. Through the moment when the men split up, Collins staying in lunar orbit in the command module, 
Armstrong and Aldrin heading to the moon's surface in the lunar module known as Eagle. But when it came time to land, they had to improvise a bit. Our autopilot was taking us into an area that wasn't a good area to land. Armstrong, who died seven years ago, gave a rare interview to Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes in 2005. It was a, a very large crater about the size of a football stadium with steep slopes on the crater covered with very large rocks about the size of automobiles. That was not the kind of place I wanted to try to make the first landing. Hey, 75 feet, guys looking good, down a half. The worldwide television audience down was watching a simulation following the original flight plan which showed when the lunar module was supposed to touch down. But as the critical moment came, it hadn't actually landed yet. So what did you do? So we uh, took over manually, flew it out further to the west, about another half a mile, where the lunar surface was much smoother and found a nice spot. You don't have a lot of fuel to do that. Right? No, we were, we were running a bit low on fuel. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. The world held its breath. Houston, uh... Oh, jeez. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, boy. Thank you. What? <laughs> okay, we're going to be busy for a minute. We finally landed with, nobody knows exactly how much fuel. Some estimates have it at 20 seconds. Eagle, you are safe for T1. I just... Then, the moment everyone was waiting for humanity's first walk on the moon. But who would take that historic first step? The spacewalk protocol on earlier flights called for the junior officer to go outside first, while the commander remained on board. The commander in this case was Armstrong. Buzz Aldrin was the junior man on the moon. The problem was that among those people who were writing the procedures, they knew that this was Sort of a hot potato. Now 89 years old and making few public appearances, Aldrin also talked with 60 Minutes in 2005. I went into Neil's office and I said, Neil, there is not a decision being made on this. And obviously I feel that I have to represent a position and I feel that you have to, but we do need a decision on this so that we can move on. He said, I understand the historical significance of what's happening, and I'm not going to rule myself out. So he wanted it. Clearly he did, yes. Was it important that you be the first one to step out of the vehicle? Not to me. <laughs> From my point of view, we had both arrived there at the same time. Armstrong said that in the end, it came down to this. Because of where you were sitting and where the hatch was. Certainly the direction that the hatch was hinged was a significant part of that determination, yes. Armstrong is on the moon, Neil Armstrong. Armstrong's first words, now immortal, were, at the time, a bit confusing. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Walter Cronkite and former astronaut Wally Schirra were perplexed. I didn't understand it. <laughs> no, one small step for man, but I didn't get the second phrase. Did you drop the A, small step for a man, or was that lost in transmission? 
Well, you've listened to me now for a while here, and you've heard me <laughs> drop a lot of syllables, so I certainly can't say that I didn't drop one there, or I may have just goofed. <laughs> then it was Aldrin's turn down the ladder. I asked him in an interview for Time Magazine two years ago about his first words. Magnificent desolation. Magnificent desolation. You couldn't call that beautiful. It was a, a shabby bunch of dust that hadn't changed in thousands, hundred thousand years. You couldn't find any place on Earth as barren, lifeless. I say that the rocks are rather slippery, very powdery. They'll uh, tend to slide over it rather easily. Armstrong and Aldrin set about raising an American flag. It turned out to be easier said than done. It would go in about that far, and then it seemed like it was just hitting rock. So we were pounding on it, and finally uh, we got it to be upright. As for Michael Collins, he remained in orbit, checking in with NASA. Yeah, radio line clear. How's it going? Roger, the EVA is progressing beautifully. They're setting up the flag now. As Collins circled the far side of the moon, he would be completely out of touch. Even when he was flying over his fellow astronauts, he couldn't see what the rest of the world was watching. I guess you're about the only person around that doesn't have TV coverage of the scene. That's all right, I don't mind a bit. Do you at all regret not having closed that final 60 miles and left Collins' boot prints on the moon? No, uh, uh, I'd be a, a liar or a fool if I said I had the best seat on Apollo 11, but I felt that I was an important part of it. Uh, when I was behind the moon, I later discovered I was being described as, oh, lonely, lonely, lonely. I was happy back there. I had my own little domain, actually going down and touching the moon. Yeah, that was not, uh, not high on my list. It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like much of the high desert of the uh, United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. As Armstrong and Aldrin carried out their scientific experiments, they seemed to be having fun. They're having a lot more motion than we anticipated. They're romping around up there. That's right. The slow movement that had been predicted hasn't taken place. After two hours and 31 minutes walking on the moon, it was time to go home. Head on up the ladder, Buzz. Time there. He just leaped up on the step. He's left the moon's surface. Buzz does have a first. He's the first man to leave the moon. <laughs> and then the first man on the moon became the second to leave it. There he goes. Look at that leap. He went up a couple wow. of steps in the one leap. The lunar module blasted off. The three crew members were reunited. You open that hatch and they're your friends. Were. Oh, absolutely. I was absolutely delighted to him. I was about to kiss Buzz Aldrin on the forehead and I decided maybe, no, no, I think history books wouldn't like that. It was a wonderful instant in time. It took just under three days to return to Earth. Apollo 11, signing off. And splash down in the Pacific. I think the best was uh, seeing those three beautiful parachutes open and knowing we were going to splat, but uh, successfully, a successful splat. And here they come. The astronauts went straight into three weeks of quarantine, but still their mission wasn't over. Gee, you look great. You feel as good as oh, you look. You feel, feel just perfect, Mr. Yeah. President. The public affairs guy, he said, well, we got some things for you to do. There's this uh, round-the-world trip, 
And uh, you don't have to go if you don't want to. My God, how can anyone say that? Around the world, 650 million people had watched every step of their journey. Now the world wanted to see, in person, the first men to walk on the moon. I was flabbergasted. Uh, I thought that when we went someplace, they'd say, well, congratulations, you Americans uh, finally did it. And instead of that, unanimously, the reaction was, we did it. We humans finally left this planet. We did it. The date's now indelible. It's going to be remembered as long as man survives. July 20th, 1969. The day man reached and walked on the moon. When it comes to celebrating the Apollo 11 anniversary, the sky's the limit. Here's just a small sampling of the places you can go. Visitors to the Exploratorium in San Francisco can look at the moon up close, every nook and crater. Apollo 11, this is Houston. Uh, everything is go. Houston, we don't have a problem. Not with the newly restored Mission Control Room. You're looking good here. Open to the public at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And the Corning Museum of Glass in New York sees space exploration through a different lens. And there is your moon. You might even spot their own glass. Astronaut. To send men to the moon, you need more than booster rockets. Among other things, Tracy Smith tells us, you need the skills of people working out of the spotlight, but uniquely suited to the job. Right now, after seeing it happen, knowing that it happened, it still seems like a dream. Even for the people who actually did it, the idea of walking on the moon is still a little hard to comprehend. Anytime you felt a little bit homesick, you could just look up and see the Earth hanging over the South Massif. So it was really a spectacular place to be. That's remarkable, looking up and seeing the Earth. Oh, it's only 250,000 miles away, so <laughs> that's home. In 1972, Harrison Jack Schmidt of Apollo 17 became the last man to set foot on the moon. You're one of 12 people ever who stood on the moon. Can you get your head around that? Well, not really. I was honored and privileged to be part of the Apollo program. But like everyone else who was part of the Apollo program, we happened to be at the right place at the right time with an extraordinarily strong motivation to succeed. And here it looks as if they're about to come out. And they were motivated. From the astronauts waving goodbye on their way to the history books to the chain-smoking guys in mission control. But back in places where the TV cameras didn't always go, a small army of women was working just as hard at jobs that were just as important. We all know this image of Buzz Aldrin in his spacesuit, But how that suit was made is a story in itself. Let's let our friend Andy Astronaut demonstrate the hazards lunar explorers will encounter. Before man could take a giant leap, they needed to solve a few giant problems. 
In the near vacuum of space, the gases within his body would immediately expand. Without the right spacesuit, an astronaut could blow up like a balloon, or burn up, or maybe get drilled by a micrometeorite. When NASA needed a new moon suit, big government contractors like Lytton Industries and Hamilton Standard made stiff, bulky spacesuit prototypes that often looked like a cross between Sir Galahad and Buzz Lightyear. To infinity and beyond! What NASA needed was something more flexible, and they found out that no one knew flexible like the people who made these. Pretty face, but uh uh-oh, midriff bulge. Her midriff bulge is showing. See the difference before and after you change to Playtex Living Longline Bra. Yep, Playtex, formerly known as the International Latex Corporation, ILC, of Dover, Delaware. The Girdle Company wasn't nearly as big as the other suit makers, but they had some pretty radical ideas. In 1967, ILC came up with a softer, more flexible spacesuit made almost entirely of fabric, and then shot this film at a local high school with an employee putting the suit through its paces. In the end, the company won the contract for the Apollo suits and gave some of their bra-making seamstresses a brand new assignment. Did they tell you initially you're going to be sewing spacesuits? They didn't tell me a thing. They just brought me over here. <laughs> so from bras and girdles to spacesuits. Little pieces like this, the big pieces like this. <laughs> Anna Lee Minner, Ruth Anna Ratledge, Lily Elliott, and Joanne Thompson were four of the women who made the suits that went to the moon. Women, it turns out, had the perfect touch, according to ILC project manager Homer Ream. The people that sewed the suits were all women. Is that because? Agility. And it took plenty of agility. Each suit was 21 layers of gossamer-thin fabric, sewn to a precise tolerance of 1 64th of an inch on a sewing machine your grandmother might have used. So our sewing shop didn't go like commercial sewing shops. It went kloop, 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 because we were interested in accuracy. In other words, there was no room for any mistakes. I went home many a night and cried because I knew I couldn't do it. Why'd you think that? Because I was scared. Scared of? I was scared. This was a person's life this depended on. In fact, they never forgot that their work could be the difference between victory and tragedy. They took this job very seriously. They did. I mean, they may have had the most important job of all, frankly. Basil Hero is the author of The Mission of a Lifetime. As Neil Armstrong said, those space suits were mini spacecraft. You were one pinprick away from death. If those suits failed, that was it. You were done. So the women put their hearts into it. Lily Elliott cut the patterns. As you were sewing, did you have in your minds where this was going, the responsibility of that? I think right at the first, no. But later on, you know, when you had all these inspections going on, it kind of clicked in your head, okay, you know, I got to do this right. This is a CBS News special report. And then the job got even tougher. America's first three Apollo astronauts were trapped and killed by a flash fire that swept their moonship early tonight at Cape Kennedy in Florida. It had happened during a test. 
when a spark in the capsule's pure oxygen atmosphere triggered an inferno from which there was no escape. This is a time for great sadness, national sadness, but it's also a time for courage. And if that sounds trite, I'll change the words to guts. In the months that followed, NASA engineers put their grief aside and made the spacecraft safer. ILC also revamped the suits to take out anything that could burn. And the inspections there could be brutal. If one of the women left so much as a stray pin in the finished suit, there'd be hell to pay. So if you had a pin in your spacesuit, what happened? You got stuck with it. I guess you learn your lesson that way. Thank God it wasn't me. <laughs> The astronauts themselves were familiar faces as their suits were made, both in person for fittings and on the signed face cards that hung from every suit, a reminder that the astronauts were, indeed, betting their lives on the skilled hands at ILC. We would have astronauts come in and thank us, and that was a real boost. It made a connection there that you didn't forget. And we're getting a picture on the TV. And on July 20th, 1969, when the big moment finally arrived, the women of international latex held their breath. Once they started down the ladder and he put his foot on the, earth, on the moon, um, that, that was a pinnacle of watching something that you've helped do. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Where was your heart in that moment? In my throat. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious, was there an inner dialogue going on, a voice in your head? Oh my, I wonder if that's going to hold. <laughs> oh my, I wonder if this is going to be all right. I hope that stitch didn't pop. <laughs> Look at that. Mm -hmm. Watching from Mission Control, Homer Ream just wanted it to be over, especially when Buzz Aldrin turned a moon walk into a moon sprint. We're getting get pretty frisky up there. I'm saying to myself, corral that guy, lock him up and get him up the ladder. It's a success. Let's declare it a success and go inside. You wanted Buzz Aldrin to stop I running. I wanted Buzz Aldrin to stop running around and get up the ladder. So-called kangaroo hop. In fact, none of the spacesuits failed. Not once on the first moon mission or the last. I was strolling on the moon one day. If you really listen to all of the audio of the mission, every once in a while you'll hear a, a song. You lapse into song. I think that's pretty cool. I was having a great time. Were you able to enjoy yourself? I really did. The whole time I was up there. Jack Schmidt turned 84 this month and he still loves sharing his lunar experience. I'd like to crawl back in there, but it doesn't look like they want me to. <laughs> and some of the ladies who sewed his suit would like back in, too. We enjoyed every bit of it, every stitch. I would do it all over again if I could. You'd still like to be doing it. Yes, I love it. Well, I'm still amazed, <laughs> but it was, it was great. They're all retired now, but ILC is still making spacesuits. And who knows, an ILC suit might one day go to Mars. But it all began with Apollo 11, when a small group of dedicated women back on Earth helped bring us all just a little closer to the heavens. 
I think they're taking pictures of each other with a Hasselblad camera. The first tourists on the moon. Anyone old enough to remember the day men landed on the moon probably also remembers the reporting of one man in particular, Walter Cronkite. An appreciation now from Martha Teichner. Okay, you're looking at the lunar surface. An estimated 125 to 150 million Americans watched the Apollo 11 moon landing. Nearly half of the country's 57 million TVs were tuned to CBS, to Walter Cronkite. In just 50 minutes from now, well within the hour, the moon is due to have visitors from another planet. Former astronaut Wally Shira at his side. Man on the moon. That moment, without Walter, inconceivable. Oh, boy. Boy. <laughs> Wally, say something. I'm speechless. But nothing could have spoken louder than his small, spontaneous gesture, his awe. Far more powerful than today's HD histrionics and hand jive. Man's dream and a nation's pledge have now been fulfilled. The lunar age has begun. This was the most trusted man in America, a tough, skeptical reporter's reporter who had stared down death covering World War II, suddenly overwhelmed by what had just happened, a stand-in for you, for me. How easy these words are rolling off our lips now, man on the moon, a walk on the moon, and yet uh, to say the words and to stop just a moment to think about them still sends a shiver up and down the old spine. The American flag on the moon. It had to be understood in the context of the Cold War as our delayed answer to the Russians sending a satellite into space first. In 1969, we were as divided as we are now over the Vietnam War, over civil rights, the moon landing. We could all celebrate. The date's now indelible. It's going to be remembered as long as man survives. I look at the old coverage now and see such innocence, such optimism. Where did it go? Has technology moved so quickly in 50 years that we've forgotten the immensity of the achievement? This is the lunar roving vehicle. Which is Walter Cronkite never did. He was an unapologetic booster of the space program. That's Walter showing off a device designed to teach astronauts how to walk on the moon. In 1985, his was one of four names CBS submitted when NASA planned to send a journalist into space. Mine was, too. A year later, after the crash of the Space Shuttle Challenger, the project was canceled. By then, Walter had made it to the finals at the age of 70. I have no doubt that if that mission had gone forward, one way or another, Walter Cronkite would have ridden a rocket to the sky. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning.